crossover day is over, where we go from here. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein. Your other host, Patricia Murphy, is off today. If you're just listening to us for the first time, we invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. If you like what you hear, leave a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Coming up on today's episode, we're joined by our special guest host, Maya T. Prabhu, AJC's veteran statehouse correspondent. Maya, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We're going to talk about an issue she's been covering for years now, sports betting. Also, transgender policies and how they've kind of filled the vacuum of social culture wars issues under the Gold Dome, and what the passage of anti-discrimination legislation means in Georgia. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. We're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Okay, let's dive in right now with our special guest host, Maya T. Prabhu. Maya, as I mentioned earlier, has been covering sports gambling and the overall debate over gambling closer than any reporter in Georgia, particularly for the last four or five years as a statehouse correspondent for the AJC. Um, this debate's been going on for longer than that, but Maya has been right in the thick of it as uh, as there's new, fresh debates over expanding gambling in Georgia. And Maya, I got to admit right off, I thought that sports betting, this would be the year. I was wrong. Sports betting may have been the biggest loser on crossover day on Monday. Four different measures that would have expanded gambling didn't pass either chamber and ended up in the dustbin. The biggest of those um, was the constitutional amendment that would have allowed sports betting that flamed out in the Senate. Uh, you covered that instantly. You had a story out within moments of that bill dying. But the bigger question too was whether on a House measure to legalize gambling without a constitutional amendment would come up for a vote. I thought that was going to, you know, not only did I think that was going to come up, but I thought it would pass. Um, and I was getting text messages throughout the day, as I'm sure you were saying, it had the votes. Didn't have um, didn't have overwhelming Republican support, but it had the votes when you, when you included Democrats. But it never did come up. Yeah. You know, so I think I would say one at the beginning of the year, everybody kept saying, this is the year for sports betting. And I said, I remember saying, I don't know if I'm just old and grizzled and cynical after being here for a while, but I'll believe it when I see it. And I'm not going to say I was right because there's still 11 more working days, but it's not looking good. Um, and I honestly thought that the bill that failed in the Senate yesterday was going to be the one that made it. Um it, had, it included the constitutional amendment. And there's this question of whether or not 
uh, the state can legally allow sports betting under, like put it underneath the umbrella of the Georgia lottery, have the lottery run it and call it a lottery game and say, it's not, you know, it's not sports betting. Well, it's mm-hmm. sports betting, but it's not, you know, paramutual wagering. It's not that it's, it's sports betting under the lottery. And then there are others who say, you must go to the people and ask the people if they want to amend the constitution, because that is the only way we can have any other form of gambling. And so I think, I think what the folks who supported that memo that came out at the beginning of the year um, from former Georgia State Supreme Court Chief Justice Melton, where he said, in his opinion, it could be included under the lottery. I think what that did is create another fracture among the people who want to expand gambling, because there's so many different fractures. There's fractures between what type of gambling they want. There's fractures between where they want the money to go. And then now there's fractures between people saying you don't need a constitutional amendment and you do need a constitutional amendment. So I was shocked when Bill Cowsert's bill died yesterday just because two years ago, the Senate approved a sports betting bill with a constitutional amendment. I was like, okay, I think it was like 41 votes. He needed 38. Yesterday, he only got 30. And afterwards, speaking to folks, I realized that the people who believe you don't need a constitutional amendment who voted for a sports betting bill that failed last week, they're like, well, I'm not going to vote for one with a constitutional amendment because I don't think it needs a constitutional amendment. And so it's like, what do you really want at the end of the day? Do you want to be right or do you want to legalize sports gambling, (laughs) sports betting in the state? That's, you know, a philosophical question probably for another day. But, you know, I think that's how we ended up where we are. And then over in the House, I never, I don't, I don't know why, again, new speaker, I don't know him very well, but something in my gut told me that if he's going to allow sports betting to go through his chamber, it's going to have to be something with a constitutional amendment. The bill that was available did not have a constitutional amendment, even though it got added to the calendar. I, I would have, that was the one I wasn't shocked about. I would have been shocked if he called it to the floor. That's interesting. I mean, there's so many different interarching debates within these debates, just as you mentioned, debates over how far to expand gambling. Should you just include it uh, sports betting or does it include casino gambling or horse racing? Uh, we saw a horse racing bill go down in flames earlier this session, too. Um, you know, with, with Speaker John Burns, I had heard him say at a, an event that he does favor a bill just including sports betting. You know, none of the horse racing, none of the a, a broader expansion. But he didn't say whether he supports constitutional amendment or a straight up uh, bill like you mentioned. And we never want to say anything's dead until it's signy die. But at the same time, they don't have very many options to go forward on this one after these four bills died. And then in the in the sort of post crossover day legislative scrum with reporters, the first question that Speaker Burns got was about. Uh, why sports betting died. And he said he just didn't think the House was ready for that debate. So maybe next year, maybe he'll be ready by next year. There's still very powerful supporters behind this, including the Metro Atlanta Chamber and all of Atlanta's professional sports teams and a lot of bettors out there who are noticing or pointing out the fact that Tennessee already legalized it mm-hmm. and, and many other states all over the nation. So Maya, I think you're going to have your hands full covering this one next year as well. I, yeah, I, I, I do not think I will stop covering sports betting or gambling anytime soon. Maybe next year will be the year that it passes, but my posture is I'll believe it when I see it. 
Yeah, maybe I'll go into next year's session with that same mindset. Look, again, <laughs> we had Governor Kemp have give it tacit approval. We had Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones who endorsed the idea. You know, we had, we had powerful players lining up behind it. But even so, that doesn't mean it's a sure thing as we have quickly learned. I want to talk quickly about another bill that, that you know, we talked about how the Buckhead bill died. But there's been another development in this story because a couple days after the Senate by a resounding vote, rejected the idea of Buckhead's secession from the rest of the city of Atlanta with 10 Republican senators joining with Democrats to oppose that bill. We heard from Buckhead cityhood leaders, Bill White and and the other leaders of that coalition, who basically threw in the towel. They said that there's no way they can go forward as long as Governor Kemp is in charge. They noted that Governor Kemp was opposed to it, you know, after that that two-page memo came out. And then Maya, this was Fascinating to me. They punctuated this by urging supporters to bug the governor on his cell phone. (laughs) So to me, if you had any thought whatsoever of keeping your dreams alive for a Buckhead cityhood, you completely dashed them there by infuriating a lot of folks around the Capitol with that final email to supporters saying, it's over. And instead of kind of just gracefully moving on, but here, here's here's some cell phone numbers for you to bug. Yeah, like it's over, but let's harass these people and see if it changes anything. Like, I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand the strategy behind that. But you know, maybe maybe harassment has worked in the past. So you you cover the Senate closer than anyone is. You're you're basically camped out there every day, with rare exceptions when pe- folks like me uh, give you some relief. Um, but <laughs> were you? Because we didn't get a chance to talk about this. Were you surprised to see so many Republican senators come out against that bill? I always knew there was a handful, and I was kind of keeping my own sort of whip count, but I had six or seven. I didn't know it would end up being 10, including folks like Mike Dugan, who used to be in leadership positions in the Senate. Yeah, I don't know. Like, it's hard to say whether or not I was surprised. So just because it's like not something I was writing about, I wasn't following it as closely. I wasn't talking to, you know, as many of the folks involved with it. But, you know, I know that it it may not seem like it based on the bills that have been coming out of the Senate, but there are a decent number of moderate senators in the chamber. And there are a decent number of senators who have enjoyed working with Atlanta's new mayor, newish, right? Newish mayor, um, Andre Dickens. I've, I had Republicans say to me, if Keish Lance Bottoms was still the mayor, this would pass with flying colors. So like, it's very much the new mayor turning this around in the eyes of a lot of the, a lot of the Republicans in the Senate. Mm-hmm. And, and I want to ask you before break too, about an issue that Patricia and I have been talking about on the show a lot, which is Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones's leadership style. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you said on the show and our special, I think it was our special episode, but you've said yes. before how you sort of a sadist, I guess, when it comes to watching the Senate. You know, it's interesting to watch bills die because we don't often see that. But under Burt Jones, we have seen a lot of bills die. And there's a question kind of out in the halls of the Capitol, who's really in charge of the Senate? And I, my answer is Burt Jones, right? He's the lieutenant governor, but he's still feeling out his power base. He's still trying to figure out how things work over there. And, you know, he's just trying to feel out, feel out his leadership style. And so far we've seen as part of that leadership style, a willingness to let bills come to the floor and then die. Right. So I've thought about this a lot because this is my sixth session. In the prior five sessions, 
I think I've only seen bills die on the floor maybe three times tops across five sessions. We've had four, I think, now die just in the Senate. And I know one died in the House this week. So, or maybe last week. So, yeah, it's definitely interesting because the common uh, standpoint had been that once a bill makes it to the floor, once it gets added to the calendar, once it gets called up for a vote, that's because the people who are supporting it know that there are enough votes to get the bill through. That does not seem to be the case anymore. Um, And in prior years, I remember there was a former chairman who, (laughs) like, I, I used to laugh at him because he would call different Democratic bills. Obviously, a chairman is Republican. He called different Democratic bills up for hearings in his committee, knowing that it was going to fail. And like you could see because they would go through the testimony, they would go through the vote. Either he wouldn't be able to get a motion in a second or the committee would vote on it and, and it would fail and he would smirk every time. Right. Mm. So like in my mind, I thought he was like, haha, that's what these guys get. I don't get that from Burt Jones. I don't think that's what he's doing. I think he really is just like, I'm taking a, not hands off, but like, I'm not being heavy handed when it comes to how I'm going to run this chamber. And I'm going to let people bring their ideas forward, go through the legislative process. If they have the votes, if they they have the votes, if they don't have the votes, they don't. And then kind of just let the chips fall. I don't know how long he'll do that. You know, maybe he'll get more of his footing under himself and, and, see writing on the wall for different bills in the past and maybe want to spare embarrassment for a member of the chamber. Um, or maybe, you know, he'll just let, let it keep going. It, it you know, it's too early to see if he's going to switch it up. Yeah. I but think I, like leader- I said, I'm enjoying watching bills die on the floor. Cause <laughs> it's something different, you know, it we see the same different. thing every day. It is very different. I didn't realize how few you've seen over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I do think his leadership style will evolve too. We'll see where it takes us, but certainly Jeff Duncan's did, right? I mean, just as he took office, there was an effort to strip him of powers in the, in the state Senate that, that failed. He ended up sort of blocking that four years ago or ish, five-ish years ago, I guess now. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of theatrics and drama, but we'll see. And we're in such a rare and unique position right here because we have not only a new leader in the Senate and a new leadership team in the Senate under him, but also a new leader in the state house with a veteran governor now in a second term um, with a lot of clout, but he's also not necessarily throwing his weight around every day either. Right. Right. He, he has put out an agenda. It's not a, you know, it's not a, a 50 point or a 70 point agenda, right? There's a few big bills he's pushing, but he doesn't have 50 bills or hundred bills out there on the floor. This is not Florida where we're seeing a number of Ron DeSantis bills that are making national news every moment. Right. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back and talk about two other major developments under the Gold Dome on Crossover Day. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. 
Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein. Your other host, Patricia Murphy, is taking a well-deserved vacation. Uh, we are two of the three authors of the Morning Jolt newsletter, along with Washington correspondent Tia Mitchell. We think the Morning Newsletter sets the stakes in the agenda in Georgia politics, and you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the AJC. You can join the community right now, this very moment, by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts and get six months of unlimited digital access for less than a buck. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts so you always know what's really going on. Okay, Maya, we're back to more discussion of what happened over Crossover Day because in our special episode, we took you inside Crossover Day. We talked to Maya, we talked to interns, we talked to lobbyists, we talked to lawmakers, but you know, that night went on to midnight, so we didn't stay. Well, we were there until midnight, but we didn't take the podcast all the way to the bitter end. Uh, and so now we're here to discuss that. And Maya, one of the other major pieces of legislation that did advance over Crossover Day was a measure that would ban doctors and hospitals from delivering certain hormonal and surgical treatment to transgender youth seeking gender affirmation treatments, surgeries, certain medications. Democrats warned that it would cause more mental health anguish among those suffering from gender dysphoria. Here is State Senator Sally Harrell explaining why she doesn't support the bill. The problem I have with this bill is that it only addresses what we won't do for our children. Instead, I really feel like what we need to focus on is what we can do for these kids. Maya, you've covered this issue for years. It sounds like, it, it feels like we're talking about a lot of issues that are perennial ones under the Gold Dome. But State Senator Harrell, uh, this is near and dear to her for a very important reason. Yeah, so she told the story more full. She, she, she touched on this last year when they were looking at transgender student athletes. Mm -hmm. She touched on it briefly last year. And in the year that's passed, she's talked about how her relationship has grown with her child. So she told the full story yesterday of how already having a son, finding out that she was pregnant with a girl, being so excited about having a son and a daughter. And at 15, her daughter came to her and said, Mom, I think I might be a boy. And they, you know, worked through this as a family. And she she even said, you know, at that time, I might have even liked if this law was in place, but that doesn't mean that it's the right thing to do, right? It's it's about reaching out to people that you don't understand and learning from them. And so in this journey that she's gone through with her son, um, who's now 21, you know, she talks about from the time last year, they didn't have the best relationship. And through Senator Harrell speaking about it publicly, I'm sure kind of opened up the door for them to be able to have face-to-face -face conversations and grow their relationship that much stronger. So, you know, this is something that is very close to her and she, you know, very much does not support the legislation. 
But she says that what we should be doing instead is investing and putting an infrastructure to help more uh, children, children with gender dysphoria to receive like full mental health screenings before any type of puberty blocker or hormones or surgeries come into play, that there needs to be like thorough evaluations and work with a psychologist before taking steps. But she doesn't believe that these medical treatments should be banned. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's this underlying concern um, that she and other critics of these measures evoked, which was that this will only cause more mental health pain. This will only lead to more tragedies of young children who are transgender. Um, and, and Maya, to me, this is also part of a, a broader trend that we've been covering at the AJC for a while. Certainly in the Senate race, the U.S. Senate race last year, at every campaign speech we heard from Herschel Walker, the then Senate hopeful, you know, he brought up gendered pronouns and letting transgender athletes compete in women's sports and that whole debate, um, even though it has very little to do with the job he was running for. Even Governor Kemp, by the way, who signed that bill into law that, that paved the way to block transgender women from competing in girls' sports, he barely did bring it up on the campaign trail. But that being said, there is an element of the Republican base that gets energized over this. So we know why these issues keep coming up. And it seems like this year, this is where a lot of that energy is being channeled because other attention-grabbing socially conservative issues are kind of being left behind for now. We're, we're not seeing new measures involving abortion or guns or limits on how sex and gender are taught in public schools or the Buckhead secession movement that had a lot of far-right conservative support or religious liberty. All those measures failed to advance crossover day. This one went forward. Yeah, it it is. You know, when you talk to the folks who support this, now I... I'll admit I need to do better research. It's something I'm working on this week. But, you know, the advocates who are fighting for this type of legislation say that this is like a 80 percent of Americans don't think that these surgeries should be happening. I have not seen those statistics. I don't know where they come from. But some poll somewhere found a large number of people agreeing that children should not be allowed to have surgery or hormone replacement surgery. And the fact that there were two bills that were introduced that addressed the same thing. And there was one that was much more restrictive and that also allowed you to sue the medical professional who assisted with any type of transgender health care. That did not make it into the final bill. Puberty blockers would have been banned in that other bill. Puberty blockers are allowed in this bill. And so there was a moment <laughs> when they were saying that the far right faction of the caucus was not going to vote for the bill because it didn't go far enough. It kept being about to be debated, not about to be debated. Breaks were taken. And then all of a sudden it's on the calendar. We're debating it. And, and we didn't even hear any arguments from those very conservative members saying that the bill needs to go further. Yeah, that was the narrative out in the halls from some conservative lobbyists who, who were very upset about the bill because they didn't feel like it went far enough, as you just mentioned. Ended up passing 33-22, Maya. But what I'm really interested is now as it moves over to the House, which you know traditionally has been a lot more skeptical of some of the far-right measures. Doesn't mean they don't pass them, but it's traditionally been sort of the, I guess it's the stopgap or the safety valve or whatever. But still, you know, as we mentioned, 
there are a lot of social conservatives over there too who want to win and who want a victory to go home to their constituents. It's not an election year. Next year, we'll see a lot more of these types of measures, I predict. Uh, it's not a hard prediction to make. But you know, there's still a lot of folks who consider this a, a major priority of theirs, even though we don't hear about it from Governor Kemp. We don't hear about it from Speaker Burns. We don't hear about it really even from Lieutenant Governor Jones as he's out there talking to folks. Uh, this is not front and center on their agendas. Yeah, and I think you know this is going to be one of the tests for our new speaker. I think we were pretty confident in knowing where Speaker Ralston stood on this. You know, he, as someone who shepherded the huge mental health overhaul last year, he did not want to do anything that was going to make lives harder or make children want to try to kill themselves, right? That was not something that he wanted to do. Those were words that he said. So now John Burns is unknown. You know, we don't know where he stands on the issue. We tried to ask him about it last night after we gaveled out. He's like, the Senate bills just got passed. I haven't read the Senate bills and I will start looking at them in the morning. So maybe I'll give him a few days and we'll circle back and see if he's come up with a stance on that one. But yeah, it's just, it's going to be whether the speaker supports the measure. And then also if he does support the measure, if there is really enough support for it in the chamber. One more measure I'd, we definitely need to talk about is House Bill 30. This was the bill sponsored by State Representative Esther Panich, a Democrat, and Republican John Carson. And this really seemed to be going nowhere a few weeks ago. And then anti-Semitic hate mailers landed on the driveways of Panich's home and a number of other homes in Dunwoody and Sandy Springs, including my house, with all sorts of hate-filled venom directed at Jewish people. And it, it shocked and stunned and, and alarmed a lot of lawmakers. And it gave new traction to Esther Panage's push. Um, and we said in the jolt the next day that there might be some uh, sudden movement in that measure. And there certainly was. It ended up passing overwhelmingly by 136 to 22 vote. And this is the law that technically, here's what it does. It defines anti-Semitism in the state code so that it can be included as a hate crime. Um, but it evoked a lot of controversy too. Even with a vote as overwhelming as we saw, um, there's still some very fraught dynamics in the Democratic caucus. Here's what Representative Esther Panich, the only Jewish member of the Georgia General Assembly, here's what she said about it. When this says this is a legally binding definition, if you just read the bill, it actually says, lines 14, anti-Semitism has the same meaning as provided for in the advisory definition of anti-Semitism. This definition is used to discern intent by a prosecutor or investigator only after an act, a, a criminal act or unlawful discrimination has already occurred. Please understand that. And it's not that difficult if you read the bill. So my, her words were not directed at Republicans who voted in lockstep for this measure. They were directed at fellow Democrats who were somewhat split over it. Now, House Democratic leadership voted by and large for it. There was one member of leadership, Sandra Scott, who, didn't, uh, who voted to oppose it. But a number of rank-and-file Democrats opposed it. So why did they oppose it? 
Well, State Representative Jasmine Clark said that she believed anti-Jewish acts were already covered under the law, but also she said it would spark questions about why it doesn't define anti-Black racism or anti-Latina racism or anti-Asian legislation. So there was that sort of pushback. And there are other critics who brought up other reasons to go against this bill. Now it goes to your chamber. Now it goes to the Senate where it faces a very uncertain fate, but it's something that we're very closely watching this legislative session. Yeah, you know, so the interesting thing about this bill is that John Carson, before Esther Panitch was here, filed it, filed, you know, almost identical bill last year. Um, He filed it last February. It made it through the House before crossover. It got through Senate committee. It got to the Senate floor. And what they do is they put a whole bunch of, you know, they put like 100 bills on the calendar that they want to get through over the course of a couple of days And then they table all of them so that they can go through and and pick out at random. It seems at random to us. I'm sure it's very thought through for them, but (laughs) pull through, like not according to the lineup that they shared with the public, but they they pull different bills off the table to be debated. This bill was tabled and did not make it off the table last year. So now for this to come back around, you know, like you said, I, I agree with you that it would not have gotten... Georgia, the Georgia legislature is very reactionary. We would not have the hate crimes law without Ahmaud Arbery. This probably would not have passed if these bills, um, you know, if if it makes it across the final finish line, this probably would not have made it were it not for those flyers landing on people's doorsteps because the Georgia legislature is a very reactionary body. And you could definitely hear Representative Panage's frustration, but then you could see her emotion as it passed overwhelmingly on the floor of the House. There's an iconic picture. I feel like it's going to be iconic, at least, uh, her embracing Republican Representative John Carson on the floor of the House. It might be one of the one of the sort of standout images of this entire legislative session when it's all said and done. Well, Maya, thank you so much for joining us as our special guest host for this edition of the Politically Georgia podcast. Coming up on Friday's episode, we're going to answer your questions from the listener mailbag, which you can now call into. Is the Politically Georgia podcast hotline. You can call anytime, leave a question, and we'll play it back and answer your question right here on the podcast. The number is 770-810-5297. That's 770-810-5297. Producer Shaney B is standing by. We've had some uh, great calls come in so far. Keep them coming. Well, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Politically Georgia podcast. And make sure you catch the special episode that aired on Tuesday, because it really does give you an inside look at what it's like to be on the floor on Crossover Day. You can get a new episodes to come out every Wednesday, every Friday, or whenever news breaks. We'll see you next time on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. 
So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologeticallyATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.